Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Isaiah 12. In in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you, though you are angry with me. Your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, Yahweh, is my strength and song, and he also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, Praise Yahweh, call upon his name, declare his name among the peoples. Make mention of his name is exalted. Sing to Yahweh, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. You may be seated. So if you have been with us in person or on Zoom or maybe keeping up with the messages uh, online these last uh, several weeks, you know that we've been taking a deep dive into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and really focusing on those four royal titles uh, for Yahweh that we see in Isaiah 9, 6. And uh, in addition to all of that, Jesus, um, as Yahweh in the flesh, as God in the flesh, he also uh, came to fulfill those royal titles, if you will, through his first and also his second advent. His first advent, which we celebrate each year at Christmas, but then also his second advent, which we're still waiting for, when he will return to fulfill his promise, and he will return in power and in glory. So what we're going to do to start out this morning is I will read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 one more time, and then do a, just a quick recap uh, of the last three weeks before uh, talking about uh, our fourth title, the Prince of Peace, which is the focus for this week. So Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever." The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so three weeks ago, uh, Steve started out this series by talking to us about wonderful counselor, Peleites, and that title is grounded in God's omnipotence. And one of the ways we see that omnipotence is through his wonders uh, that he performs. Uh, The Bible is full of them. But also the fact that his counsel is good and it is perfect. It can be trusted and it is worthy of our continual pursuit. And towards the end, Steve had a series of questions which I've kind of consolidated into one. And that is, how are you pursuing Jesus as your wonderful counselor through prayer, through devoted time in God's word, and then by seeking godly wisdom through relationships that are grounded in biblical discipleship? And then two weeks ago, David talked to us about that second royal title, Mighty God, El Gabor, that nothing is impossible for him. And the greatest example of God's might on our behalf is our salvation through Christ. The mighty God came in the flesh to give eternal life to all that would receive him. 
And I like the way that David wove in two questions for us during that message and then brought them back at the end. The first one was, what has God done in your life where you can look back on it and view it as the mighty God working through you or on your behalf? And when the Holy Spirit brings those things to your mind, even things that happened 10 or 20 or 40 years ago, those are opportunities to give God praise and thanksgiving, as well as the more recent things that we share during our testimony time when we have that on Sunday mornings. So don't forget to constantly be on the watch as, as the Holy Spirit brings those things to mind and give God praise and thanksgiving for those mighty things that he's done on your behalf. And then the second question is, what are, you, what are you currently asking God to do that will only happen because your God is a mighty God? And that's the opportunity we have to exercise our faith in God. You know, a lot of times it's been said that our prayers are so generic that we don't even know when God answers them. So we need to make sure that our prayers are specific and our prayers are bold and that we really are asking God for those things that only he can do. And then last week, Bob talked to us about Everlasting Father, Aviad, Everlasting Father. And as our Everlasting Father, or as Bob pointed out, Father of Eternity or Progenitor of Eternity, God is the only one that is able to give us eternal life. And I, a key takeaway for, for me last week is I had never really considered this link, this connection between Isaiah 9-6a, the very first line of Isaiah 9-6, and then John 3-16, where it says in Isaiah, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then the well-loved, well-known John 3-16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then at the end, Bob, one of the questions Bob put forward to us was, have you received the gift of eternal life? And we'll come back to that at the end of today's message as well. And so this brings us to our fourth title, the final one, Prince of Peace, Shar Shalom. Shalom. And uh, we're going to look at this in four parts this morning. We're going to start with the context and the two advents of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And I just want to point out, you know, we often think, when we think of that word Advent, sometimes we just limit it to the season of this year, this part of the year, the season of Advent. But the word actually comes from the Latin for to come, and so it refers to both of the Advents of Jesus, his first coming that we celebrate at Christmas, and then again, the one we're waiting upon to come in the future, hopefully very soon. And so after we do that, we're going to look at that name, Prince of Peace, a little bit. And we'll break that down, look at the word prince, look at the word peace. And then we're going to look at the saving and internal peace of Jesus' first advent. And then we'll wrap things up by looking at the perfect and eternal peace of Jesus' second advent. So with that as kind of an overview, let's go ahead and jump in and look at the context of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You know, sometimes we tend to focus a little bit too tightly on a verse or a small passage of God's word, and then we end up missing the fuller or the bigger picture uh, of those verses because we're missing out on the context. And now we've looked at the context a couple different times in the last three weeks, but I want to do it a little bit differently this morning. You know, these two uh, well-known verses... Uh, well-known, especially uh, this, these two verses are well-known because of Handel's Messiah, that because of Handel's Messiah and the singing of these words, you know, a lot of people, even non-Christians, recognize these words. 
uh, especially during the Christmas season. But they lie at the heart of a section of Isaiah made up of chapters 7 through 12 that includes several key prophecies regarding God's Messiah. The first of those is found in Isaiah chapter 7, particularly 714, verse 14, where we find God's wonderful sign and promise of hope regarding the miraculous nature of Messiah's birth, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And Pastor Bob will be sharing more this evening on that name Emmanuel during our Christmas Eve service. So I hope you'll be back for that tonight at 7. And then, as we move into Isaiah chapter 9, this is where Isaiah, uh, through the Holy Spirit, then provides some specific details regarding Messiah, including his nature and his character, as well as the amazing scope of his future reign. And then Isaiah 11 is another exciting chapter in this uh, segment of Isaiah where it provides an even deeper dive into Messiah's reign during the future kingdom age. And as we're talking about peace, listen to these words from Isaiah 11 verses 6 through 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea." And then this wonderful section of Isaiah then ends with chapter 12, Song of Salvation. That's why I asked Steve to read uh, chapter 12 to us before this uh, teaching. It really provides a fitting capstone to this prophetic glimpse of God's promised Redeemer. So let's now go ahead and look at the two advents that we see uh, both represented in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. So we see here, this just the first line, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So this speaks to Jesus' humanity, that he's born as a child, as a baby. Uh, as Pastor Bob reminds us, it even goes uh, even earlier than that, down to the level of a zygote, a single cell. And to think of God's glory, everything about God packed into a single cell that then grew into a child that was born. And then it also speaks to his deity, that he's a son. And uh, one of the neat things uh, that I heard this week from Chuck Swindoll, he had a message entitled Deity in Diapers. And this is really an amazing revelation given through Isaiah 700 years before the incarnation of Jesus. So this first advent is all about the fact that Jesus comes to save. Jesus comes to save. And we can be confident, by the way, that, that Isaiah is speaking about Jesus since Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. The, so at the beginning of this chapter, that's quoted in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel account. So I'm going to go ahead and read that uh, for us uh, this morning. Now this follows immediately after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So it's right after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. 
And then this picks up right after that as Jesus launches his public ministry. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, also looking a little bit deeper into these first words of Isaiah 9-6, you know, Isaiah and the people of his day probably did not understand what we know with certainty today, namely that Messiah would be God in the flesh, not just God's human representative, not just a special king or somebody you know, special that would come along and represent God, but would be God in the flesh. And then something to think about along those lines is that the fact that it is impossible to read the Gospels, especially John's account, and not conclude that Jesus is God in the flesh. You're really left with no other option when you read the Gospels. And Jesus himself emphasizes that truth over and over again. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that Jesus never said that he was God, you can confidently refute that because it is very clear in Scripture. And then another thing uh, that I think uh, we need to consider about these early words in Isaiah 9-6 is this concept of two advents would have been a mystery to those living in Isaiah's day. Would have been a mystery. In fact, uh, it was a mystery even to the people of Jesus' day, even his own disciples. We see that in a number of places in God's word, but one place in particular is Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 27. And this follows immediately after Peter's, uh, Simon Peter's confession regarding Jesus' identity, where Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke for the group. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then right after that, this is what Matthew records. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then I had, I was telling Pastor Bob, I'd never noticed this in verse 27 at the end of this, where it says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So Jesus here introduced, I don't know if this was the very first time he did this, I didn't get a chance to look at that, but. This is certainly one of the early times where Jesus clearly foretold that he was coming again, that he would come again in the future. 
And then moving on to Advent number two in our verses, where we see Jesus comes to reign. And that's really the rest of this, these two verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And again, we have uh, references here to Messiah's humanity, that he's a descendant of David, as well as to his deity, that he and his throne are eternal. And these truths are grounded in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7 that ends with these words in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So how do we know the highlighted text is speaking of Jesus' second advent? How do we know that? Well, I think, first of all, we have that line there at the top, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, in a sense, all government is under God's sovereign control or upon his shoulder, even today. Uh, but then clearly, as we move down into verse 7, um, we certainly don't see peace, peace with no end. And I think many of us would also recognize that justice and mercy and things like that are things that we associate with an eternal kingdom. We just don't see a lot of evidence of this in our world today, do we? So I think we can be confident that this is actually a reflection of Jesus' second advent where Jesus comes to reign. And though the four names that we have been looking at during this series, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, although they are unique to this passage in Isaiah, the broader truths of this passage regarding Messiah's two advents are declared elsewhere in both the Old and New Testaments. So I'd like to look at one example of each of those, beginning with Jeremiah 23 in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So there again, Jesus is humanity. He's a descendant of David. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. So again, clearly uh, Jeremiah is also there talking about Jesus' second advent. We could see that with just that phrase, Israel will dwell safely. We just look around in the news today, and we know that's not the case at this time, but it will be in the future. And then in the New Testament, we have the angel's uh, proclamation to Mary in Luke 1, where the angel then said to her, um, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, there in the angel's proclamation, we see Jesus' humanity, but we also see the fact that there's a future kingdom that's coming with his second advent. So let's go ahead next and then look at this title, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And there's a number of things I would like to kind of point out about this really quick. First of all, this title appears only here in Isaiah 9-6. So nowhere else in scripture do we find the title Prince of Peace. And then secondly, uh, let's look at the two words. First of all, prince, uh, sar in Hebrew. Uh, and that is a very common word in the Hebrew. Uh, it appears over 400 times in the Old Testament alone. And 
What's interesting is that it's translated in a number of different ways, primarily as prince, just over half the time, but also captain, chief, ruler, and then there's several other minor words that are used. But as far as I could tell, Isaiah 9-6 may be the only time that prince is used in reference to Yahweh or God. Uh, you may be thinking, if you're thinking of Messiah the Prince, Daniel's reference to Messiah the Prince in his 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9.25, that actually uses a related but very different word uh, for Prince. So that's a, a different reference. So I think that uh, I'm pretty confident that this is the only time that Prince is used to refer uh, to Yahweh. And then that word shalom or peace uh, in the Hebrew, it's shalom. And we're going to talk a lot about that word, but just as far as how often it appears, it's very common, again, in the Old Testament, 237 times. And it appears in 33 of the 39 books of the Old Testament, most frequently in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Psalms. But then in addition to that, when we look at its Greek equivalent, Irene, uh, in, it appears another 92 times in the New Testament. And it is found in every book except 1 John. So, and most frequently in Luke and Romans. So clearly, peace is very important to God. It appears in 59 of the 66 books of God's word. And so it clearly is very important to God and very important, therefore, to us. So let's look at the, the meaning of this word. First of all, I want to consider it from the kind of the Western mindset, like here in the United States would have. We'd have mainly a Western mindset when we think of peace or shalom. So first of all, we tend to think of peace as the absence of conflict or freedom from conflict. And when I'm looking up a definition of a word, I don't know how many of you have done this, but a great place to turn to is Webster's 1828 Dictionary. So not the modern Webster's Dictionary, but the first one that he produced in 1828. And it tends to give very uh, nice definitions that have not been uh, influenced by the culture or by changes. There's a lot of words that are redefined today. They don't mean what they once me meant. And uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary is also great because almost every definition has a Bible reference in it because he was a strong Christian, and so he often turned to God's word in defining words. So when we look at Webster's 1828 Dictionary, uh, we see this word freedom very prominent in his definition of peace. First of all, he says it's freedom from disturbance or agitation, including freedom from war with a foreign nation. So that would be public quiet. Freedom from private quarrels, suits, or disturbance. So that would be kind of private quiet. And then lastly, also freedom from agitation or disturbance by the passions or the emotions, as from fear, terror, anger, anxiety, or the like. So quietness of mind, tranquility, calmness, uh, quiet of conscience. And as we'll see in a minute, it's that last definition that starts to kind of approach the Hebrew mindset of this word shalom. But while this is a very noble uh, approach to peace, it is ultimately unsustainable. Uh, historians tell us that in the last 3,500 years of human history, there have only been approximately 300 years, so less than 10% of the time, where there has not been at least one active war in process somewhere in the world. So peace is something we may strive for, at least in terms of 
absence of conflict, but it is something that humans rarely achieve because we cannot achieve it on our own. But then uh, looking at the meaning more from a Jewish mindset, it actually goes even deeper than what Webster had to say about it. For it refers to a state of completeness, wholeness, and soundness of body, soul, and spirit, including health, prosperity, and security. In the Jewish mindset, it actually has more to do with character than outward circumstances or what's going on around us. Um, and even today, uh, you'll find that uh, Jews frequently use this word to greet others or when leaving their presence. When, when leaving someone's presence, they'll say shalom. And it's their way of expressing the desire that they may experience that state of mind of completeness, wholeness, and soundness. But this too, as it would not surprise us, is um, impossible for anyone to achieve on their own. And that's because we just have a misunderstanding about this word shalom or peace. And our misunderstanding revolves around the fact that we misunderstand the nature and purpose of true shalom from God's perspective or true peace from God's perspective. We misunderstand it. We misapply it. I love what Paul David Tripp says about shalom. He says, true shalom means that everything is in its right place, doing exactly what it was meant to do, and working in perfect harmony with everything else. Can anyone here think of a time when that was the case? In the garden. I heard in the garden. That's right. Uh, before the fall. In the garden before the fall, the only time that that state really existed. And furthermore, uh, this shalom that God had created, it was shattered by sin. It was, it was shattered by the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. Therefore, the purpose of shalom from God's perspective is not to make life in this world more comfortable and carefree, what people often think of as peace on earth, but to restore what sin has broken, our relationship with our creator. Only God can provide the true shalom that we need. So let's now examine how true shalom was partially restored through Jesus' first advent and will one day be fully restored through his second advent. So looking at his first advent, where we look at the saving and internal peace made available by Jesus. And this boils down to really understanding what our real problem is. That our real problem is that we were God's enemies and without hope due to our sin. But God's wonderful solution was to send Jesus Messiah. And one place we see this so clearly is in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, where we read, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The restoration of shalom is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, we read this, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. But then in addition to there being this problem and God's solution, there are terms of the peace treaty and results, and we see those earlier in Romans 5 in verses 1 and 2, where we read this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we receive this gift by faith, and it really is that simple, as I'll talk about at the end this morning. So then, the other part of this, as far as the saving and eternal peace of God, we can look at that in a couple other places in Scripture, and I'd like to start by looking at Jesus' own words in a couple places, three different places to be precise. So first of all, in John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. That's really important to recognize. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 14, 27. In other words, Jesus lives a, gives a type of peace that is very different from the world's definition of peace or thinking about peace. And then he also said in John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So again, there we see that phrase, in the world you will have tribulation. So again, Jesus' peace is not about having a carefree life, having no problems, no issues, no conflicts. That's not the type of peace that Jesus came to bring. Again, he came to bring us peace that would give us a restored relationship with our creator and ultimately give us true rest, as he says in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, there's nothing we can do to earn this peace. It's all by God's grace, all by God's goodness to us, all through Jesus. But there are things, I think, that we can do to help us better experience the saving and eternal peace that Jesus made available through his first advent. And the first one is, quite simply, through prayer. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So again, prayer is really an essential uh, component of being able to really experience the type of peace that Jesus came to offer us. But then in addition to that, I think the other big thing that we can do is to better rely on and then yield to the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit will remain more evident in our lives. In Galatians 5, and this is well known to most of you, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I was thinking about that this week, and it just kind of dawned on me that especially joy and peace... Uh, 
really start to have more uh, evidence in our lives. They start to flow from our lives more freely when we're doing some of these other things, when we're loving others, when we're putting the needs of others before our own needs, uh, when we're exhibiting kindness and goodness, uh, gentleness towards others, and then when we're exhibiting self-control, again, putting the needs of others before our needs and kind of taking our needs and putting those on the back burner sometimes. And I think as we do more and more of that, this joy and this peace that the Holy Spirit uh, has for us will just become more and more evident in our lives and just more real to us. But there is a challenge that comes along with this saving and internal peace that came with Jesus' first advent. And that challenge has uh, several parts to it, but it's kind of dominated by the fact that only followers of Christ have this peace or have access to this peace. Um, sometimes we get ourselves in trouble because we don't avail ourselves of the access to peace that we've been given. But as a result of this peace that, God, that Jesus has given us with God, it often is going to put believers in conflict with the world. And we see that in Jesus tells us that very plainly in Matthew 10:34 and also Luke 12:51. That second uh, reference there, Luke 12:51 says this, where Jesus said, "Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division." So it's going to put us into conflict because we live in a fallen world that impacts us. Part of that is what I read earlier from John 16, 33, where Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. And then there's our residual sin nature that we battle that also impacts us and our relationship with others. Sadly, although we would like to think this was not the case, sadly, the church is not immune from this. We see denominational splits. We see church splits. We have conflict between individual believers but most of that, when, it, when push comes to shove, really boils down to the issue of pride. And that's why the Bible speaks so strongly against being on guard against pride and really uh, trying to pursue the humility that Jesus demonstrated for us. But because of this challenge, um, the ultimate state of shalom is still future to us. But there is good news. In fact, there's very good news. Jesus is coming back. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus has made this wonderful promise to us that we can bank on and count on. And we're going to talk more about that uh, next. But the first thing we have to make ourselves aware of is that along with this good news comes a warning. A warning that there are consequences for those that reject Jesus' saving peace. Uh, the judgment and justice, if you will, of Isaiah 9-7. And one place that we see this very prominently is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16 where we read these very, um, very sometimes difficult to, to receive words, but uh, this is, this is uh, the Apostle John uh, writing in, in the revelation that he was given. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So there, John, a reference to John 1.14, the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But as sobering as those words are, we then read in the the next portion of Revelation that Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom. Uh, But even there, there's, uh, there's some battle, there's conflict that happens there. But then ultimately, Jesus sets up his perfect and eternal kingdom in which true shalom will be experienced both internally but also externally. And so I want to look at two more passages from Revelation that talk about each of those. So first of all, Revelation 21, 1 through 5a, the perfect and eternal internal peace that will come with Jesus' second advent. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So we are going to have this perfect and eternal internal peace. But then the world is also going to experience a perfect and eternal external peace. And that's the last chapter of Revelation, the first five verses. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So no more curse, no more darkness, just perfect and eternal shalom under the gracious and righteous rule of our wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. So in the end, have you availed yourself of the peace with God that surpasses all understanding by accepting Jesus as your Savior from sin? If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that right now. It will make this Christmas your best Christmas celebration ever. And then if you're wondering, how can I do that? Well, there's a number of ways to look at that, but one that I have always found helpful 
is to look at the ABCs of salvation. First of all, A, admit. Admit that you are a sinner and acknowledge that you need a Savior. Then B is for believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as that Savior and accept his atoning work on the cross that fully paid for your sin, a love gift from Jesus to you. And then C, confess. Confess your sin to Jesus, calling upon his name for salvation. And if you have any questions about that, you can see me or Pastor Bob or David or Steve after the service. We'd be glad to talk to you more about that. But then, assuming that you have resolved that issue, who do you need to share this truth with so that this Christmas can be their best Christmas ever? As Romans 10.15 reminds us, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And then, for some, we struggle with this concept of peace. So where is peace lacking in your life this morning? Have you fully turned that over to your Prince of Peace? And then finally, how actively are you looking for and also looking forward to the return of King Jesus? As you celebrate his first advent today and tomorrow, make sure that you don't forget his promised second advent. In other words, as you look back, don't forget to also be looking up. And then in light of the fact that Jesus is, that Messiah Jesus is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you and praise you, Lord, for this opportunity we've had during the month of December to consider these four royal titles for Messiah Jesus, for Yahweh, because Jesus is God in the flesh. And we thank you for all that these four titles uh, portray about our Savior. In fact, they portray much more than we've been able to cover uh, during these four times of teaching, Lord. So again, help us to apply these truths to our lives. Help us to embrace the fact that you are, in fact, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and that your kingdom, your future kingdom, will have no end. It will be eternal. And for all that have accepted you as Lord and Savior of their lives, we have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and we will get to enjoy uh, that amazing future with you in heaven. And so we praise you and thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.